Before we get started in uh, this passage in Galatians, as you've all been anticipating this specific one for quite a while, well, some of you, I guess, um, want to acknowledge we have a three-day weekend. Why do we have a three-day weekend? No. Why do we have a three-day weekend? It's because somebody died so that we could have a three-day weekend. Memorial Day is about people who fought for our country, not just recently, but all the way back to the Revolutionary War to remember. Um, if you know your Memorial Day history, it started after World War I. It was called Decoration Day. Um, and what it was is they would go to the grave sites of those soldiers who gave their life for their country, and they would decorate those tombstones. And so we need to remember, why can we gather here this morning? Why can we go out and vote? Why do we have the freedoms that we have? It's because those who went before us fought and gave the ultimate, the ultimate price of their life. And so my encouragement to us um, as a church is to not just remember it, if you've got kids, to teach them the truth of this. Uh, but if you get a chance, go out and decorate some graves. You don't have to know who they are. You don't have to know who their families are. It's a good thing for us to remember this. Now, on top of that being Christians, above and beyond all of that greatness and all of the freedom, should all of that be taken away? Who is sovereign? God is sovereign. Hence the song, you can have all this world, but give me Jesus. And so we want to we celebrate and say thank you to those, those people who gave their lives, to the family members who are still alive, of those who gave their life. Um, but uh, above and beyond that is to have the perspective and remember, as God's people, as Christians, as good as that is, and as wonderful and as thankful as we need to be about that, we need to lift Christ even higher. We need to lift Him even higher. So that's why, as a church, we want to keep Christ the center of all that we do. We want to keep the gospel central to all that we do. We want to keep God's word central and his glory and his goodness central to everything that we do. Whether it's demoing the uh, dumpster, which sounds really weird, but we can glorify God through that. Or on Sunday morning, gathering together as God's people, hearing his word, singing songs of praise to him. Uh, because this is all about him. This is not about us. It's not about our comfort. It's not about our feelings, about making us feel wonderful and ooey and gooey. It's not even about conviction of us. It is about opening ourselves up to God, worshiping Him and glorifying Him. And if He chooses to convict us in this moment, then let Him convict us. If He chooses to reveal Himself so that we give Him even more glory, then praise God through that. We need to make sure our hearts are completely focused on Him and Him alone. That being said, with this passage... Paul is using this as, well, maybe we should start, Galatians. Galatians is a letter that's written to a bunch of different churches in an area called Galatia, not a specific church like Elm Creek Church, but multiple churches to be read by them. He's hearing things that these Christians are, have fallen away from the faith or are believing false teachings. And so he writes this letter to correct them. He's saying, this is not, this is not right. What you're doing and what you're saying and what you're believing is not what I taught you. Now, that's not just arrogance. Uh, that's not an arrogance from on Paul's perspective. He's saying, I told you the truth. You were saved by the cross of Jesus Christ, and now you're falling back on circumcision. Now you're falling back on works for your salvation. 
Why? You're already saved. Circumcision does nothing for you. Don't listen to these false teachers. And so he's, been, he's saying, been saying over and over and over and over again, justification as being made right before God, that happens by Christ, by grace, through faith. Sanctification, which is living the life that Christ has called us to, being more and more made into the image of Christ. That's a lifelong process, but how does that happen? By the grace of Jesus Christ. We can't force ourselves to be better people. We could be moral people, but that does not make us godly people. There's a big difference between those two things. But we cannot be justified by God and not be sanctified by God. We can't say, I'm a Christian, I'm a child of God, but I don't really care how I live. God doesn't care how I live. He's going to forgive me anyway, so I can do whatever I want. What I would say to that is, that's evidence that you're probably not a believer, that you haven't been justified. On the other hand, you can't be sanctified without being justified. You can't say, I live a moral life and not be justified. So if you're living a moral life, you're doing it out of legalism or moralism, not out of the fact of the gospel message. You can't have justification without sanctification. You just can't. They're the two sides of the same coin. And now Paul jumps into this passage And even though he's writing to Galatians, to Christians in these churches, this particular passage is also written to and for those false teachers who were perverting the gospel message, who were saying that faith in Jesus Christ alone isn't enough for justification. One must also be circumcised. Paul is revealing that what the Judaizers have done, these false teachers have done to the faith of these Galatian believers has dire consequences. What is it that they've done? They've hindered believers from obedience to the gospel message because they were offended by the cross. To hinder obedience incurs a penalty of God's judgment upon them. To ignore such a warning will lead to both immediate and possibly eternal consequences. So this is a big deal. This is a really big deal. And this is why Paul uses such strong language. Okay, that last phrase, emasculate themselves. We'll get there, but you can hear the frustration and the anger in Paul's, in Paul's words. Now he's, he starts off, you were running well, in verse 7. He's what does it mean for these Christians to run well? Well, in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 19 and following, Paul writes of becoming all things to all people for the sake of the gospel. I became a Jew for the sake of the Jews. I became a Gentile. I lived like a Gentile. I ate, I ate pork so that I could reach the Gentiles. I became weak to the weak and strong to the strong. He lived as a Jew so that he could win Jews to the gospel. He lived like Gentiles so that he could win the Gentiles to the gospel. He says, I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run? Where have we heard this before? But only one receives the prize. And so run that you may obtain it. Running the race 
living the life of obedience to the gospel. That's what it means to Paul. Running the race of living the life of obedience to the gospel message so that some may believe. That's what it means to run the race of faithfulness to the gospel. And he says as much in verse, verse 7 here. He says, who hindered you from obeying the truth? Who hindered you? You were running so well. Who hindered you from obeying? Obeying the truth is running well. Running well is obeying the truth of the gospel message for justification or that justification being made right before God is found only by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, not by any works of our own. That's what it means. You were running well. You were being obedient to the gospel. You believed. What in the world happened to you? The Galatians were listening to false teachers who were hindering their obedience to the gospel. And like a runner cut off during a race, the running of the Galatians was impeded, and they were cut off on the course of faithful obedience, a dangerous situation for any believer or any church to find themselves. Imagine the Christian walk is a path and there's ditches on both sides. These false teachers had moved them from the path into the ditch. And Paul is saying, why? A church that does not deal with false teachings Anything contrary to the primary teachings of Scripture, and if you go, well, what are the primary teachings of Scripture? Go to the Apostles' Creed. You can look it up on the internet. You can read through it all. Those are the primary beliefs. If you do not believe in the virgin birth, you are not a Christian. If you do not believe that Jesus is the Savior, you are not a Christian. Those are harsh words, but you disagree with any of that. Now, you might disagree with, well, what does this exactly mean and how does it apply to our life? That's totally different. But to, be, to not believe that Jesus himself was God himself in the flesh, you are not a Christian. Those are primary, the primary things of Scripture. But a church that does not deal with anything, these false teachings, anything that's contrary to those primary things, is a church that is not running well the race of obedience to the gospel. Overlooking or dismissing the false teachings of one individual places the entire church body at risk of disobeying the gospel message as a whole. The enemy, the real enemy, right? Our battle is not against flesh and blood. It's against the spiritual powers of darkness, right? So Satan, the enemy, doesn't usually fight a battle head on. Okay, we like to think of, you know, like exorcism, right? It's going to be so obvious. If there's a false teacher, their head's going to pop off and twirl around and come back on, right? Those kinds of things. It, that's not the way Satan works. Satan is subtle. Does anybody know that reference? I've never seen the movie. I just know the reference. The enemy doesn't head, fight head on. Instead, it, he sneaks through the back door, making slight suggestions in small groups, one-on-one conversations over coffee. False teachings may not easily be seen or heard, but a little leaven leavens the whole lump, he says in verse 9. Like yeast in a lump of bread. Does anybody make bread anymore from scratch? Have you, anybody who's done that, you, you put a little yeast in? This is how they make bread 
like in the factories too. You can't make it any other way. I mean, you could, but nobody's going to eat it, right? So you put a little bit of yeast in, leaven, and what does it do? It makes the whole loaf rise. The leaven infects the entire lump. So like leaven and a lump of bread, like yeast, false teaching doesn't stay put. It doesn't stay in one little end of the loaf. It begins to spread. And if left unchecked, the whole church body becomes infected. This is a warning to the Galatians to recognize their peril in believing these false teachings and to do something about it. He's he's calling them out, act, do something about it. But it is also a warning to these false teachers. Paul will not stand for them to continue to hinder the obedience of those who believe and obey the gospel message. Paul even said at the beginning of this, this book, he said, I will not let one thing get in the way of me preaching the gospel message. Nothing is going to stand in my way. What is at the root of this false teaching? We may say, well, it's feelings or it's opinions or it's how you were raised. The roots of the false teaching is the cross of Jesus Christ. The cross is offensive. For the Jews, it's a stumbling block because who could believe in and follow a criminal who who could not even save himself from a shameful and cursed death? Why would I follow this guy? Not to mention that he taught that the sacred law of Moses was no longer needed to be obeyed for justification. That's a big deal to a Jew. I'm going to ignore him. That's offensive to me as a Jew. And this is where the Judaizers landed. They may have loved the forgiveness of sins, but they just couldn't let go of the law. So they made a hybrid faith, which includes faith in Christ and works of the law, circumcision or following the festivals. But a hybrid gospel is a gospel plus gospel, which is a false gospel. Not that there is another gospel, Paul says. A plus gospel plus gospel is not the gospel. It's false. But the true and right teaching of the cross is that Jesus went to the cross because of my sins and because of your sin. He perfectly lived out every aspect of the law without sinning, which none of us could have done. His perfect obedience, his death upon the cross to be our atoning sacrifice, to pay the price of death for our sins. And his resurrection from the dead, it all makes it possible for us to be justified by God. That's what makes it possible. And so here's the question. What role do you and I play in this sequence? Nothing. Except the sin that made it necessary. That's our one role in our salvation. Our sin. I can't live the perfect life. I can't be the perfect sacrifice that is sufficient to pay the penalty for all of my sins. I I can't defeat death and rise from the dead. I can do none of this. But Christ did all of it. All of it. Not half, hoping that maybe we can make up the other 50%. Or not even 99, hoping, well, maybe he'll, Mark can make up that 1%. No, he did all of it. For an unbelieving world, The cross 
is an affront to self-pride and self-help in regards to salvation. Let me say this again. This is not my quote. This is from a theologian, a theologian that I read. For an unbelieving world, for a world that rejects Jesus Christ, the cross is an affront to self-pride and self-help in regards to salvation. The cross forces us to acknowledge our inability to save ourselves. The cross humbles us to realize our need for someone outside of ourselves to save us from our sins. And these false teachers in Galatia were offended by the cross and so began to spread a perverted gospel, teaching justification by circumcision. Circumcision made Jews different from all the other people groups of the world. It's what they held high. It was their sign, I am belonging to God. What they saw as an outward sign of God's acceptance of them was in reality an outward sign of God's rejection of them. Now, don't hear me wrong. I'm not saying that circumcision itself is sinful or that to be circumcised or to do any good work like that is to be rejected by God. Uh Uh-uh, Paul was circumcised. He was a Jew. He even circumcised Timothy at one point in his ministry. Circumcision itself is not sinful, but requiring the act of circumcision for righteousness before God is sinful. For there is a penalty to bear in holding to and teaching others that kind of requirement. Paul's confidence in the true salvation of the Galatians is strong. He says, I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view than mine. The Galatians may have strayed from the path of justification by grace through faith alone, but Paul holds to the truth that the same one who saved them, who saved those churches, saved those people, is the same one who will bring the Galatians out of the ditch and back onto the path of obedience to the gospel. He has confidence they will persevere. It's called perseverance of the saints. Who helps us as God's people to persevere through trials, through troubles, through sin? Who helps us? Christ does. He perseveres through us. Paul's confidence is equally strong, though, that those who were undermining the obedience of the Galatians would bear the penalty. Now, what would that penalty be? Well, here we go. Paul's words in verse 12 sum it up well. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. I'm not going to go into details. Congratulations, parents. Now you'll have to explain that. But he uses these words very purposely, obviously, because circumcision is at the center of the issue, right? He's talking about circumcision. But he's also, on top of that, not promoting physical mutilation. He's not saying, That's, this is what, circumcision is not enough. You've got to go the whole way. That's not what he's saying. There is sarcasm and there's anger and there's frustration in Paul's words. The point is obviously about these people being cut off. The individuals being cut off. If circumcision brings so much holiness and justification, then why not just cut the whole thing off and be really, really holy? So that's the sarcasm sarcasm about it. And it's purposely absurd. Paul's going, this is, do you realize how absurd this is? 
It proves his point that any work done by any human is not enough to justify. But to believe such a thing is to be cut off from the grace of Christ, which is the true power that saves. But there's also another meeting, and there's a meeting for the Galatians uh, to pick up on, which um, John Calvin, old dead guy, puts it, he puts it very well. He's saying, uh, basically, this is put in John Calvin's words. He goes, I wish, from Paul's point of view, Paul is saying, I wish that instead of listening to the seductive voices of these teachers, they would have been cut off by you, excluded from the church, and disowned as brothers. Those are harsh words. Let me say that again. I wish that instead of listening to the seductive voices of these false teachers, that they would have been cut off by you, excluded from the church, and disowned as brothers. From the moment that it came to their ears, the Galatian believers should have immediately recognized the falseness of the teaching of the Judaizers, and they should have done something about it. They should have corrected those teachers, pointing them to the truth of the gospel message. And if those teachers refused to turn from their false teachings, they should have been removed from any fellowship with the church body until a full repentance occurred. Now that's you know, people say, you just kick people out of the church. The point of kicking people out of churches is to bring them back to Christ. Okay, the scripture says, remove them from your, present, from your presence and hand them over to Satan so that they might turn from their wicked ways and come back to the gospel. We don't just, as a church, we should not just willy-nilly be kicking people out. Well, I hate those drums. That's it. You're gone. Well, you know, you're a little boring today. I'm sorry. You're no longer allowed to worship with us because you don't like me. Like, no, that's, that's not the point. But if someone persists in perverting the gospel message and teaching it, even if it's on a one-on-one situation, and they refuse to repent and turn from that, the consequence is removal from fellowshipping with this family. And should that person repent and come back and say, I was wrong, I'm sorry, this is the truth, this is false, the church opens their arms and they say, welcome back, brother. Welcome back, sister. We love you. Now that's hard. That's hard for everybody involved in it, but it's necessary. It's necessary as a church at Elm Creek, to say, okay, what, what does this mean for us as a church, as a whole, but also individually? Well, first, for us as a church, your elders on the servant, servant leadership team take the teaching of the truths of Scripture serious. Should we hear any false teaching of the primary matters of Scripture, we strive to immediately deal with it and deal with the leaven so that it doesn't spread. This type of action, it's not easy to do something like this. You ever been in one of those meetings? It's not flowers and butterflies and joy and crying and happiness at the end. It's very difficult. It's hard, and it's at times very personal for everybody involved. Sometimes it involves individuals that we consider very good friends, Sometimes people leave our fellowship out of anger. 
But none of this holds any precedent over the truth of the gospel messages given to us in God's word. We strive to become all things to all people in order for God to save a few through us. But we will never compromise on the truth of the gospel message. We can disagree on a lot of things, and they're great conversations and even really healthy debates. But should you or one of the elders or the pastor speak something contrary to the truth of the gospel message, to the truth of the primary things found in God's word, correction, a call to repentance will be made. And should there be no repentance, removal from leadership, first of all, if continued to not be uh, repentant, to not turn from that truth, it would be removal from fellowship with the church. That means they can't attend any of the ministries here. Now, again, that sounds harsh, right? Like, that's so unloving. But for somebody who wants to teach a perverted gospel, this is not about feelings. This is about the eternal destination of souls, which is bigger than you and it's bigger than me. To preach a perverted gospel is to pervert the truth of God himself, how he has revealed it to us. Not how it makes us feel great or not great. It's about his truth. Now, usually it doesn't get to that point. As far as I know, I think even in the history of Elm Creek, now I might be wrong, I don't think there's ever been a time where we've asked people never to show up again. Usually they just go away. They, it, it's too much, which makes sense, right? But... That's not what we want. We want reconciliation. We want repentance. We want, hey, let's work through this process together. But no matter how close it is, even if it is one of our fellow elders, we will not compromise on the truth of the gospel message. Secondly, for you and I individually, we need to honestly evaluate whether we are on the path of obedience to the gospel as given to us by God's word or if we're not on that path are we leading others astray are we turning people from the truth of the gospel message to our gospel or the world's gospel or just in general a perverted gospel a false gospel. We have to evaluate what we say. Now, do we make mistakes? Are we like, ah, in small group, we say something, and it's like, ah, that's not quite true, and you get corrected, and you're like, oh, yeah, I can see it. That's, that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about blatant perversion of the gospel, knowing the truth and rejecting it, and leading others astray. So where do we stand on the primary truths of, the, of God? Are we holding to and striving to live by the whole counsel of God, or do we pick and choose what we like, perverting the gospel message of Christ alone by grace alone through faith alone? Are we leading others to understand the whole truth of God, or are we cutting them off from running well? Is obedience to the truth of the gospel message our primary concern, or is it secondary to anything else? Now, don't hear me say that people are a project, right? Or you could just be a jerk to be a jerk. That's, that's not what we're talking about. 
whether you personally go to correct someone or the elders go to correct an individual or a group of people, it is done with gentleness and humility. There's a reason Jesus said, look at the log in your own eye before you correct the speck in someone else's eye. That doesn't mean don't correct the speck. It means realize, you know what? You are just as much of a sinner as this individual. You disobey God just as much as this person you're coming to correct. And when you realize that I'm at probably more of a sinner than you are before I come to you, what does that do to my heart? It humbles me and it goes, I, I love you. You're my brother. You're my sister in Christ. I want to see you obey. I, I've got issues too, and I want you to point those out, but let's deal with this one right now. And then you know what? When we deal with it and we pray for each other and we help walk with each other, then you can point out the log in my eye and and I will humbly accept that correction because that's what we should be about. We should be about living lives of joy and love and praise to God and being corrected where we're wrong because we're wrong a lot of times. We're wrong a lot of times. But is obedience to the truth of the gospel message our primary concern? Or do we look elsewhere hoping that if we go elsewhere, that will lead them to the gospel. If we don't deal with their sin, and if we don't deal with their sin, they'll see the grace and then suddenly believe in the gospel. What you win them with is what you win them to. What you win them with is what you win them to. That's not me, that's Mark Dever in Washington, D.C., If we win them to the truth of the gospel message, what will they believe? The truth of the gospel message. If we win them with moralism or legalism, they will then look to moralism and legalism to be justified before God. If we win them with grace and love and fast music and fancy schmancy lights and and a great personality up front, that's what we're going to win them to. And what's not there? Christ. As soon as you get rid of that personality, as soon as you get rid of those lights, as soon as you get rid of the the grace and you point out the sin, what's going to happen? They're gone. Now, that's a generalization. I understand that. But what we win them with is what we win them to. And if we hold the gospel as a church at Elm Creek as our foundation, of what we believe and what we do and how we correct, what are we winning them with? What are we winning ourselves to? The gospel, which never changes. And it always saves. And it always grows and sanctifies us. That's why we preach the word of God. It's why we preach the word of God. I am a fallible human being who does not have much of a personality. We want to win you to this. Not me, not the worship team, not the songs, not even a nice warm or cool area with a beautiful building. Those are all great. Give me Jesus. You can have all this world, but give me Jesus. Do we really mean it? And are our lives showing that? To ignore, disobey, or lead others astray from obedience to the gospel message of Jesus Christ we have to remember has dire eternal consequences. 
We may be removed from fellowship with God's people until we repent or our eyes may be opened to the fact that we never were one of God's children, and meaning that we are not justified before God, but we were just trusting not in Christ but in our own works for our salvation. If that's true for us, then may we repent. Hear the truth of the gospel message. I love you too much to not tell you the truth. I want you to feel good in the gospel, not in me, not in us as a church. We will let you down because people fail. People fail, but the gospel never fails. And if we are God's children, may we strive to obey and teach the gospel message with our lives. May we depend upon His grace and His works to justify us before God. And then may our lives flow out of that, that we become gentle and patient and kind. And we love others, not just to make them feel good, but to point them to Christ and the gospel message. The reality is right now, right now is the easiest time ever for you to be a Christian because it ain't going to get any easier. The way that our society is going is going to become more and more difficult to be open about your faith. You're going to have more and more consequences about the gospel message. You speak the gospel message, they're gonna, the world's going to fight against you. It may come to the point where we're, we're going to be arrested. It's already happening. It might mean your death, being put in prison. That's been happening ever since Jesus Christ came, by the way. We've just been protected by it. Today is the easiest time for us to be obedient to the gospel, and it's only going to get harder. And if our hope and our desire is founded on being liked by other people, we're going to really struggle. We're going to really struggle. But if our hope is founded upon the gospel, you may take my life, but I've got Christ. I've got him. I believe the gospel. And so hopefully, prayerfully, our lives would reflect that, even if it's reflected imperfectly. To grow in him, to speak, preach the gospel message with our lives, with our words, with our actions. Not to be jerks, not to be holier than thou, but to be grace-filled because Christ had much grace for us to be mercy-filled because Christ showed much mercy, much mercy for us, to us, to be love-filled because Christ showed much love for us. I did nothing to earn salvation. I did nothing in the process of justification except for sin. That's where we're at. Only my sin that made it necessary for Christ to come to earth. That should humble us, and yet it should point us to the one who's given, should be given the true worship and glory. Amen? Now, Father, I pray as your church here, I pray for your church throughout the whole world, God, that, that you would remind us of your gospel. We get so caught up in our own preferences, our own desires. We even let the fear of what may happen in our lives, how people would speak of us, the dangers that we might be put in, what people think of us, uh, God, these are, these are real issues that we're, we deal with as your people. And I pray, Father, that 
we would not be afraid, that our strength would, to, to speak the truth would not come out of our own strength, but through the fact that you dwell within us. We are your children. You empower us to do this. Remind us of that, God. And should this world reject us, and they will, Father, that if we live a life of holiness and we live a life to to strive to bring others into you, that most will reject, but some will believe. It is not our job, Father, to change hearts and to save souls. That is your job. But you have called us, Father, to stand firm on your gospel. You have called us as your people to stand firm on you, to live a life of holiness that is out of you. And so when people see us, Father, they may not like us, but may they never say they don't believe the gospel. May we be faithful to the end, no matter what may come. And may we check our own hearts, Father. May we check our own hearts so that we might not lead others astray. We ask this in your precious name. Amen. Would you stand as we sing our final song?